This episode is brought to you by Exceder. Exceder provides life science startups with equipment leases on founder-friendly terms to accelerate R&D and commercialization. Lease the equipment you need with Exceder. Extend your runway, hit your milestones. As a podcast listener, you can redeem exclusive discounts with a growing list of biotech vendors and get $500 off your first equipment lease by using promo code TBSP on exceder.com slash rewards. Welcome to the Biotech Startups Podcast by Exceder. Join us as we speak with first-time founders, experienced scientists, serial entrepreneurs, and biotech investors about the challenges and triumphs of running a biotech startup. Gain actionable insight into navigating the life sciences industry in each episode as we explore the business of science from pre-seed to IPO with your host, John Chi. In our last episode, Sandy Page talked with us about putting his MBA to use, his general manager experience, and his transition to the Jackson Laboratory. If you missed it, be sure to go back and give part two a listen. We continue our conversation in part three, discussing Sandy's time scaling international distribution at the Jackson Laboratory, how a family medical issue made his work deeply personal, his thoughts on learning business development, and how he left to run a search fund. And so now you've set up this new site in Sacramento. You've expanded, you've stabilized the West Coast operations. I know you then opened the aperture and started to manage international distribution for Jackson Laboratory. What was your experience going international and doing business development overseas? And I believe you also still were overseeing the West Coast. A little bit of all of that. Some of that was out of my control. There were organizational changes and new opportunities created for other people. And so I shifted around and kind of did the best I could with the organizational needs. Didn't want to go back to headquarters, which was one of the options that came up a couple of times. Headquarters being in Maine, really wanted to stay out west. And so the opportunities that were most available to me if I was staying there was basically to get in a plane and fly. And so I became a road warrior, did business development, did international distribution. And just so people understand what this means, genetically engineered mice are used in research to develop everywhere from basic research all the way up through testing new drugs or anything that any of your listeners have ever put in their body from a pharmaceutical standpoint that wasn't first run through a mouse. And that's, needless to say, I think that's good. It's You want to use as few animals as you can in research and you want to treat them as humanely as science can possibly allow. But it is still a very important part of the drug development cycle to run animal research studies. And they are shipped all over the world. I mean, there's specialized animal models that do very narrowly defined things and have very special intellectual property in them. And so we would put mice, and I'm sure it still happens, into shipping containers, mount special shipping containers, put them on planes, and they would end up in India and, and in Singapore and in Israel and in Australia. And sometimes they would be rebred there. Other times they would be used directly in studies. And so I spent time traveling around the world and went around around the world twice, I think, completely around the world oh my a couple of times visiting customers. I think I went from San Francisco to Singapore to Mumbai to Tel Aviv to San Francisco on one trip. And, and those are long. You don't do that in a week. That's a two yeah. or two and a half week trip. And it's fascinating. I mean, what's not to love about that if you can do it? And if you love your work and you feel like you're making a difference and doing cool things, 
that was just a gift for me to have that opportunity. And it was an organization I loved. I think it's maybe worthwhile pausing for a moment to say what the Jackson Laboratory started doing was making, and there were a few Nobel Prizes won there, and, and its impact on cancer research and discovering the, the genetic basis for disease. Cancer is touches all of us, obviously, and anybody listening who doesn't have an impactful story there. In my case, all the career you've heard me talk about up through right about to this point that we touched on was uh, with my first, my late wife, Anne, who passed away from breast cancer about this time that we're talking about and the, towards the end of my time with the Jackson Laboratory. And, and so it was a deeply personal place for me to be. If your wife is getting chemotherapy and you're working at the place where chemotherapy was first developed or some of the first medicines that made a real dent in cancer came out of basic research from your employer, that's a form of equity that, that's worth more than anything you could imagine. And while it was a nonprofit and while the value, the pretty significant value I participated in creating, it didn't accrue to me, it's doing really good work right now for a whole bunch of other people. So that story in the decade I spent there was very tied together by a personal story of a, of a spouse who was suffering with can from cancer over a 10-year period as we were raising our kids and, and ultimately ending up losing that battle. And everybody who's listening to this has, has a version of this at some level, either maybe as personally, you know, as closely as, as this, but maybe it's just a, not just, but a mom or dad or friend or cousin or whatever. Those are important decisions to get right, you know, not to walk away from meaningful work that relates to the things that are important to you kind of at your core. And those things aligned really nicely for me at that stage of my life, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Something that drives me for being in the life science is exactly that. It's what kind of alluded to is like, it's more than the equity. It's just like the broader good that the life sciences delivers for all of us, you know, and how it touches on all of us is every day getting out of the bed just gets me fired up to get to work and ready to ready to do this. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. I agree. There are some other ways to deliver good, but that's a really good one. <laughs> yeah, totally. As you flying around the world and realize you're meeting clients, you're meeting strategic accounts and everything like that, were there other aspects of your now, I guess, like new role that Jackson Laboratory tasked you with besides meeting your international clientele? Or was that your the main? That was the main. I mean, there was enough to be done there. And yeah. I was also in charge of a, of a very large distribution agreement that we had that allowed one of the large CROs to breed our mice in Europe and in Japan. And so managing that contract was substantial and a challenge as well. So I went from managing a local manufacturing facility to managing, I built first, I, I guess I built a US business development function, I hired a few couple people there, and then I did the same thing internationally. But but I didn't manage the local sales teams directly, but sort of deeply involved in all of that. A colleague with, with the people who did. Got it. And you mentioned kind of building like business development functions and orgs within the Jackson Laboratory. Do you have any advice? And I, you know, having I just came back from the Nucleate Summit, meeting folks who are MBAs, folks who are wrapping up their PhDs or postdocs. And a lot of the interest they've asked is like, how do I get into business development 
especially particularly from the realm of being a scientist or maybe an MBA. How do you go about doing that? And maybe just a level set it, for you. What would you define as business development? And yeah. then maybe go from I think there. there's, it's a good question. I think there's often confusion. Business development and sales, I view as different things. I view sales as answering the phone, following the playbook that is provided, typically, managing current accounts, chasing a few new ones. Business development is not that. It's developing new business. It's, it's going and creating opportunities where none existed. Typically, there are larger opportunities. Also distinct from strategic accounts, which is managing the largest sales accounts. BD is a little bit more creative. I do think it's important that you have the basic tools of sales and strategic account management in order to do BD well. But BD, you've um, got to be able to walk a line between talking a bigger game and talking to higher level people. And in my case, I always had to be very careful because I'm clearly not a scientist and clearly representing a very scientific, highly reputable scientific organization. So, so I always had to walk a line between those things. And I'd be careful to make sure that people knew in the first conversation that I wasn't a PhD. It wasn't, it wasn't any of that. And so it was, it was an important part of the conversation where I just had to make sure I didn't get into a conversation where people were assuming I was going to have an answer that, that I wasn't. And, and if I did, that was fine. I just be very clear. And I can answer that. I'll get you that answer. And so what is BD? I mean, I think it's listening to your to patterns is looking for pattern recognition. It's typically listening to the most senior people in your organization who usually will know where the opportunities are and where they want the sales organization to go and generating opportunities and triggering conversations. It all starts with creating conversations and building relationships and getting people to trust you enough to tell you what they need or what's wrong with your current offering or what new offerings could be provided or how your current ones could be improved. How to get into that, I think there's nothing wrong with starting in a sales function. And if you have PhD level friends asking you how to get into BD, the answer is there's a whole bunch of people who would love to hire them for sales organizations right now and, and go take a sales job. Just take one. There's 10 of them you could get hired for probably with a good PhD tomorrow. It may not be perfect. It will not be perfect. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, you yeah. will be frustrated coming out of the lab and having to hit a number. But I dare you to do it for a year or two and tell me I'm not right, that it wasn't a really good experience for you. And that's not a good path to getting into BD or strategic account management. Fantastic. Yeah, I think sometimes felt very nebulous, like and it kind of like yeah. almost the Venn diagram almost will appear to be clearly overlapped. But I think it's less overlapped than what is traditionally told from my experience too as much as that i am i would say this i didn't love sales i didn't love sales but i learned how to do it and did it for a very very long time when i look back on kind of like business development activity that i'm doing to this day i would not trade the sales the hard sales chops that you have to learn because at you know at the end of the day and and sales is just like effective communication alignment of expectations and right. custom, like this, and being very, very customer focused, and those things you can read as much as you want about it in a book on the internet, but there's nothing like just doing it. And I almost think people who want to get into BD might get too academic about it, yeah. and not just get their their hands dirty because that's the best. 
That's that's the best. It's I think you and I would also agree. It's often said about the BD guys by everybody else. Like, what the hell are they doing all day? <laughs> yeah, because right? it seems like they fly to all the conferences. They're always wherever they want to be. They might play a little more golf than I do. They don't really leave the meetings with any responsibilities, as far as I can tell. And they probably make more money than I do. Like, what what is BD all about? So. I think BD can also become a problem, and it's probably the first place to get cut to when sales organizations get too fat. So I think you got to be careful. Got to be careful with definitions of what BD looks like as well. Absolutely. Or we didn't have anybody in BD. I defined it as everybody's job, and that was the only way we could get it done because there was just not enough expertise in our field for people to become effective salespeople. Like we were the five people who knew the most about it. So. Guess what? The CFO was was BD as well. That's the way we we managed it. In addition to having a really, really world-class salesperson who ran our whole organization. She was great at BD and sales and strategic account management. She sort of did all. That's awesome. Thinking about Exceder, and it's like, yeah, it's definitely a similar vibe where everyone has a BD cap that they wear from yeah. time to time. It definitely works for us. It's a good reminder, I think, for everybody. So it's also not... Again, it's situational. If you're yep. trying to grow at 40% a year, which we were growing at, at Explora, you can't possibly hire enough people to do that work. It's got to be everybody's job. And yep. I don't know what your growth rate is, but I'm guessing it's pretty stout. And it sort of has to be everybody's job. And, and I think that there are some cultural messages that you send to your, to your team about that too. It's not below anybody. This is what we're about. We're about taking this product and and making it available to the universe. So up that phone or get on that plane and get there. And if, if somebody else can't be there, you can go do it. That worked pretty well. I'm not sure it's scalable. Sometimes you do unscalable things for a period of time to get yep. from people there. You learn from it too. If you're like, yeah. eh, maybe that effort was not exactly what we were looking for. You don't have to do it again. So it's like, right. you know, I know you you spent nearly a decade at the Jackson Laboratory. When did you know it was, it was time to leave? And when did you know what your next opportunity was going to be? So it got to a point where I had said no to going back to headquarters twice. You don't get asked three times. And I generally knew, I mean, I knew I wasn't going to ascend to run the whole organization. It was becoming a place where when I arrived, I was the first outsider who had an MBA who was hired in. That, that was a, a new thing. By the time I left, it was almost like you had to have an MBA PhD to be in the senior team. And you know, I wasn't going to fit there. I wasn't going to grow there. I, you know, I, my time was up. But I don't think I felt it necessarily from the from leadership, but but I felt it in my heart. And there were other things I wanted to do, and so I wanted to do a search fund. And and my wife, my new wife at that time, Meg, uh, was just fantastic in recognizing again pattern recognition as a CEO. She pattern recognition as a wife. She was tired of hearing me talking about search funds and she's a CEO and an MBA as well. So <laughs> she said, told the story a few times where she said, you know, it's time for you to stop talking about this and either go do it or stop talking about it. <laughs> used slightly more colorful language than that, but, and it worked out. So our deal was our agreement, uh, husband to wife was go try to raise a search fund. Don't quit your job until you're 65% raised. And that took me you know, since I was working full time, took me seven or eight months to get there. And then as I got there, right about this time of year in 2017, I guess it would have been at that time, I left 
or gave my notice at Jack's and started finishing the raise of the search fund. So I don't know how much your guests know about search funds, but it's a the first thing you do is raise a small pool of capital to support a two-year search uh, for a business of a certain kind. And that's what I mean by raising that capital. So as soon as I had raised that capital, I set about going to acquire fine and then perhaps acquire a business using the capital provided by the the investors. And thank you for setting the table there, because I think in the life sciences, most people are much more familiar with the venture fund, just like, and even from our perspective, and we don't have a fund, but they're like, credit, what's credit? (laughs) It's it's very much, they're very, very familiar with venture VC. So thank you for kind of explaining what a search fund is. I'm thinking back on when you were talking about exploring the search fund space and learning about search funds, it sounds like you've been in the know in the search fund world for some time. How did you learn about a search fund and how did you learn how to do it? Like, And when was that? First heard the phrase between my first and second year of business school when I had an internship, as many people do. And the venture capital private equity guy who I was working for suggested you should go do a search fund. And this would have been 2001 or so. And <laughs> and he described it. So he said, basically, you raise a small pool of capital, and then you go find a business, you buy it, and then you have to run it. I'm like, well, wait a minute. I'm going to raise capital. A, I've never managed a PL. I've never managed people. I've never really done anything other than get an MBA. And I'm going to go buy a business from somebody and <laughs> sell it to me. Yeah. Uh, so and he's like, yeah, that, that's pretty much the way it works. And I said, I don't have the cojones to do that. I think that sounds like hubris and arrogance. And so I'm going to go do something else and get some management experience. But I like the idea. <laughs> I'm going to come yeah. back. And I came back to it a couple of times. I came back to it once and did a what we call a self-funded search that went sort of predictably terribly. And I came back and was going to do a search, proper traditional search fund five or so years later. And my wife had her second bout of cancer at that point. Maybe it was her first. And then there was a third returned to it after she was well and, and cancer returned. So I had a number of times where I, I sort of approached it, got ready to go and do it, and then something held me back. So it really wasn't until I was, unfortunately, until I was into a new marriage and my second sort of family, when uh, the time and the dominoes lined up in a way that I could take a shot at it. It didn't come out of the blue. It was something that was on my list, and I knew time was running out. Like As it was at 48, when I raised a search fund, I was the oldest person to have raised a search fund. And I barely succeeded in raising just the search capital because I was so old. I had four kids in high school. I was doing what we call a geographic search, which meant I wasn't just going to go anywhere in the country wherever I found the business. I was going to do a Northern California kind of California search. And that ruled out an awful lot of people who are professional investors in this space. Understandably. Fortunately, I I bamboozled enough people in and and built (laughs) it. A cap table of the only people who said yes, as I, as I like to say it, ended up working out really well for them. So those people are all very much on my forever Christmas card list. Yep, totally. And as you solidified the the fund and you embarked on the actual search, the the search part of the of the search fund, how did you find Explora Biolabs and what made them stand out to you? Where you're like, okay, this is the one. Yeah. I wish it was that deliberate. In fact, I think in my investment documents, I specifically said I wouldn't be investing in biotech because biotech is full of venture fund money. It's not full of profitable small companies. And the search fund world only acquires profitable 
small companies that you can grow without a lot of capital expenditures and without a lot of working capital. And, and so there's a certain certain profile of the business you can acquire with a search fund, which rules out an awful lot of the, you know, the GDP of, of a country like the US, leaves a lot of the GDP available too. And, and it turns out there's a whole, there is a sector of support. Biotech is big enough now, biotech and pharma services is big enough that there's a sector of of the industry that I really didn't, I wasn't aware that existed, that is doing things like facility support and supply chain support and services, B2B services to the biotech and sort of venture-driven pharmaceutical development pipeline. And those are very, can be very good businesses. And while I wasn't looking for one, I did, you know, one of the first things you do when you start a search fund is you call kind of everybody you know, and you shake all the trees and I called a former customer and we started chatting and I, I realized that he had a business that I that was a little bit more and a little bit more interesting than what I had thought it was. And it led to a whole series of conversations and we rather quickly got to terms and that turned out to be exactly the right business for me to run. And my investors, even though I had said no biotech, you know, these are professionals, they knew the fit between me and that business was perfect. And that I was super excited about it. I had a very clear thesis about what we ought to do and how we would make it work. And so, you know, we didn't have any gap in our cap table. We were oversubscribed. Everybody wanted to invest. And and that part of it was generally pretty, pretty easy. The equity side of the story was pretty easy. Debt side was harder, but that's another story. As as debt tends to be sometimes. Uh, you, right. you know a little bit about that, don't you? Yep. And I, difficult for different reasons, I, I will, I don't know, maybe similar. I think sometimes that can be very fickle or volatile, it, very sensitive to to macro. But maybe that's just me speaking on my experience. Well, and especially right now. Yeah. Right now is especially the case. And, you know, with <laughs> the advent of, it wasn't even a year ago, like a, two quarters ago of SVB and so on and right, so forth. It's, right, exactly. you know, the conversations that we're having is like, people are still, you know, the dust has not settled yet. Absolutely. No, especially in biotech and venture. I mean. Yeah. That's all for this episode of the Biotech Startups Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Sandy Page. To learn more about his journey, tune into part four of our conversation, where we cover his time at Explorer Biolabs, the importance of CEOs' relationships with their board, the acquisition by Charles River, and the qualities of which he attributes his success. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave us a review, and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to having you join us again on the Biotech Startups podcast for part four of Sandy's story. The Biotech Startups podcast is brought to you by Exceda. Don't want to miss an episode? Make sure to search for Biotech Startups Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and click subscribe. To learn more about our leasing program, visit our website www.excedr.com. We provide research labs with equipment leases on founder-friendly terms to support a path to exceptional outcomes. On behalf of the team here at Exceda, Thanks for listening. The purpose of the Biotech Startups podcast is to provide general insight into the ever-changing world of life sciences through the experience of a variety of guests. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast are at the user's own risk. 
The views expressed by guests and any employee of Exceda on the podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Exceda or content sponsors. Any appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement or recommendation of any product, service or entity referenced in the podcast by Exceda or by its guests.